Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the podcast hosted by the bloggers of FT Alphaville. Today is September 5th. I'm Cardiff Garcia in New York, and I am excited I'm practically crawling out of my skin with enthusiasm. I don't even know what that means, but we're talking about the economics books of the year today with possibly the blogosphere's two most voracious consumers of these kinds of books. Diane Coyle is on the line from London. She blogs at Enlightenment Economics, which you should check out. She's an economist and a consultant. She specializes in technology markets, innovation, and a whole bunch of other things that you can look up on her blog. uh, And She's got a long and impressive resume there. I don't want to list them all because I want to get started. Diane, thanks so much for being here. How are you? Uh, Great, thank you. I'm really pleased to be having this conversation. It's great to have you. Tyler Cowen is an economist at George Mason University. He blogs at Marginal Revolution. He has an almost offensively wide range of intellectual interests about which he can speak knowledgeably. Tyler, thanks for being on Alpha Chat. Hello from Virginia. From Virginia. Virginia, Uh, Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia. Okay, for our listeners, this is what we did. I asked Diane and Tyler to send me a list of five books released this year that they thought would be fun to talk about. And then from that list of 10, I narrowed it down to five for this podcast. Now, by happy coincidence, because I didn't know this when I asked Diane and Tyler to do this, Tyler's book comes out on September 12th. So after we discuss these five books, we're going to talk to Tyler about his book at length. And as it turns out, Diane is also putting the finishing touches on her own book, and that's going to be out early next year, and she's going to give us a teaser about that as well. But for now, let's get started. So the first book is Worldly Philosopher by Jeremy Edelman. It's a biography of Albert Hirschman. It was chosen both by Diane and by Tyler. And for our listeners who don't know who Hirschman was, he was a political economist probably best known for exit voice and loyalty. He also made seminal contributions to the study of development economics, especially in the concept of unbalanced growth, backwards and forward linkages. We're going to talk about that. And he lived a life, I think, of adventure, both in terms of physical courage, physical bravery, and also intellectually. He liked cutting across the lines that divide the social sciences and Maybe because of that, he was always a little bit of a controversial figure, at least in economics and political science. But we're going to fill in the details as we talk about the book. I really want to get Diane and Tyler in here. So, Diane, you want to get us started? Do you want to just give us your reaction to the book and and tell us why you chose it, why you liked it so much? I'd read shamefully little by Hirschman or about him before I read this book. And it turns out that he had an absolutely gripping life story. So this is 650 pages of adventure, both uh, physical and intellectual to start with. It's it's just a gripping tale. And his kind of economics, his cross-disciplinary work, his political economy, was out of tune with um, the times in economics for uh, much of the past generation. But I think the time is coming back to meet him. And so the interdisciplinary aspects, the importance of politics and implementation of policies... That was another thing that I think made it really interesting. Yeah, this idea that that he shunned at the time the the mathematization, uh, the specialization of economics, um, and it seemed like he he kind of he kind of lost that battle to the extent it was a battle. He lost it for a while, and and maybe now it's it's coming back into vogue. But anyways, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Tyler, do you want to do you want to add to what Diane said and and give us your own thoughts on the book? 
Hirschman is the one economist who should have won a Nobel Prize and didn't. And what I find so striking in his work is not just the particular original contributions, but the way that he sets out problems so that you feel there are always more degrees of freedom for your further understanding. There's an open-endedness to Hirschman's ideas. And he titled one of his books, A Propensity for Self-Subversion. That's how he described his own way of thinking. What I find so very good in the Edelman biography is just how well it captures this aspect of Hirschman's thought, which is quite hard to pin down and a little intangible. And you get it when you read Hirschman. But it also comes through when you read the biography and you see how Hirschman's understandings of the complexities of economic development and other issues, how they came from his life, and how he managed to have this unique way of thinking that hardly many other people have equaled or rivaled. You learn from the book that he was a voracious reader himself and read the classics, read a lot of history, read a lot of uh, contemporary economics and politics. And so he was such a wide thinker, that, and it was an antidote to the the narrowness that affected so many economists since, I don't know, the 1960s or so. And I think it's a, a fantastically uh, illuminating read because of that. And just seeing um, the biography pieced together, which bits of his own reading and which bits of his own experience contributed to what he wrote is, is a, a fascinating intellectual discovery. Yeah, and I, I, I think as, as the one non-economist among the three of us, I was struck by the risks that Edelman took in terms of assuming sophistication on the part of the reader. I mean, this is a 650-plus page book about a political economist, but he didn't dumb it down, uh, and I thought it was, it was intriguing. I want to I put some... Um, I want to introduce inject some details here and, and say something about Hirschman's life. He was born in 1915, and the first 100 pages or so of the book are a detailed, a gripping, and a really wonderfully accessible account of the fall of the Weimar Republic, the political rise of the Nazis. He came from a secular Jewish family. His family was later scattered into different parts of Europe. He himself went to France, and he ended up fighting, uh, being an active part of the the anti-fascist resistance movement in four different countries at a very tender young age. Uh, He later fought in the the Spanish Civil War around the time that Orwell was there. Uh, As a U.S. soldier, he was stationed in Algeria and in Italy. Um, In terms of uh, his economics training, he was at the LSE. He was influenced by Hayek, and he'd go on to be this this hugely important figure in development economics. Um, I want to I want to ask you, Tyler, about some of his specific ideas. The concept of unbalanced growth. Um, I mean, is this first of all? Can you can you talk a little bit about what it is, and then discuss whether or not it's accepted or embraced still today? Hirschman wrote on the 1950s and early 1960s on this question, and he claimed that growth would be driven by entrepreneurship. It wouldn't be a bunch of economic sectors expanding at more or less the same rate. It would be quite dynamic and unbalanced and even would look chaotic. And at the time, this just sounded strange. People expected a kind of big push from development where you advance on all these fronts at the same time. Uh, And if you look at places like, say, China today, which has gone with infrastructure much more rapidly than other areas, or India, which has run ahead with its service sector more than, say, its manufacturing Hirschman's analysis, it holds up quite well, I think. People are still going back and reading it and seeing the hidden depths there. Uh, And his original statement of this thesis was really quite simple and non-technical, but he still managed to be deeper than the other people writing on development at the same time. One of the interesting messages, I think, in his work is that there's no top-down template for how a country ought ought to develop. 
and he had seen the experience of Western Europe in the post-war years and then uh, developing countries in, in the 1950s. And I think learned from his own experience just how context-dependent and history-dependent the paths of development were. Yeah, I, I guess I liked his acceptance of impediments as good things rather than bad things, this idea that countries need to gain experience in in making difficult decisions. I think uh, the way Edelman described it, a lot of economists at the time took the opposite tract. Um, so if there was one thing I took away from the book, it's that Hirschman liked frictions. He liked disequilibrium. He didn't he didn't go for the, the political order of the um, of the political scientist or the equilibrium of the economist. He thought that with frictions, with doubt, where people were, you know, kind of struggling between opposing poles, that's where you found what the problems were that you needed to solve. And that's where people were inspired to act. Um, Tyler, you want to talk also about Edelman's emphasis on on learning, on improvisation, this idea that you can stumble into progress? A lot of the greatest advances of humanity, the internet is a good example, they weren't really originally designed for what they ended up being used. So a lot of technical progress, it is a kind of stumbling. It's more about building environments where you'll get a lot of happy accidents and less about planning in the explicit sense. And this was another one of Hirschman's important ideas that was also later picked up by Thomas Schelling. Diane, do you want to elaborate a little bit on this point that you made earlier about a new kind of intellectual? I mean, this idea that uh, at the time that Hirschman was doing these things, economists were moving more towards modeling. Um, do you think that the window is now increasingly opening for uh, a Hirschman-like intellectual? Or maybe it opened a while ago with the introduction of things like behavioral economics and other psychology, other aspects from psychology, philosophy, political science. I mean, do, do you see this uh, increasing? I think I do. So, some people would see this as overly optimistic about the extent to which economics is changing. But I would say that over the past maybe 20 years or so, even there has been an increasing interest and interest in the use of different disciplines in economics and as well as behavioral economics and psychology the overlap with economic geography for example and the renaissance in urban economics and uh, um, the interdisciplinary work with sociologists and, and political scientists that's been that's been going on and i think the financial crisis has given this a new impetus because not least uh, in crisis ridden economies where uh, what we call structural reforms, which means politically difficult choices are having to be made about getting the economy going again. Politics is is central to economic decision-taking. And I hope that we will see economists learning once again about not only other disciplines, but the history of their own subject, because universities have been turning out economics graduates for a while who, who don't know that there have been recessions before, who don't have any context in which to place what, what's been happening. And actually, we've seen in the last five or six years how important those lessons from history have been. Sure. Well, Tyler, I'm maybe a little more pessimistic than that. You know, I agree the economics profession is much more open. But one thing that Hirschman had was that classical European background in education, and that we've been losing quite rapidly. Uh, so his ability to, to mobilize so many different ideas and explore them creatively, it depends on coming out of a particular milieu and study of history and the classics. And that's where I think we're probably weaker than we used to be. Yeah, this was a big theme of the book. He was, he was certainly a very uh, literary figure. Um, Tyler, I want to discuss Exit Voice and Loyalty for a minute. Um, you know, for our listeners, Exit was the idea that if you didn't like what an organization was doing, 
you could leave it or threaten to leave it and produce change that way, improve it that way. Voice was the other option, the option of complaining within the organization rather than leaving it. Uh, And the options interacted in kind of interesting ways. Now, Tyler, a chunk of this book was dedicated to Hirschman's uh, debates with the public choice theorists. I know that this is a favorite topic of yours. Gordon Tullock wrote a withering critique of exit voice and loyalty. And Hirschman thought Manker Olson's logic of collective action was a little too pessimistic in terms of challenging the motives of people who try to produce change collectively, whether that's uh, in public life or, or through their own grouping. I guess I want to ask if you think that the book fairly represented this debate, and what do you think about the debate itself? How should we think about Hirschman's legacy in this regard? I think the book has held up very well. That protest is very important. Uh, speech is very important. So is persuasion and rhetoric. And you can think of this book as having come out of the 1960s. I think it first appeared in 1970. The notion that economists needed to make sense of the idea that people also talk. They don't just buy things or not buy things. And Hirschman helped us put down some building blocks for what that kind of theory would look like. I think there's one revision which Hirschman made himself to his own work, which I would want to stress, and that is voice is often more effective, that is protest is often more effective when you have the option of leaving. So complaining can work, but complaining backed up by credible threats to take your business elsewhere Uh, That, to me, is often more powerful than just complaining per se. And I'm not sure the earlier Hirschman book quite got that point right. And later, when Hirschman revisited the issue and he talked about East Germany, well, people complained, but it's when they complained and had the possibility of going to the West that the regime really had to take account of uh, their criticism. Diane, you want to react to that? Well, just to add that um, the public choice approach in um, some ways backfired because assuming that public servants themselves are motivated by individual interests, which led to um, an assumption that they're, they're in it for themselves and they therefore need monitoring and tar- giving targets in the way that they have been, um, actually turned out to change people's behaviour. And I think going back to exit voice and loyalty with the complexities that it sets out has, has, is a really useful corrective. Yeah. That's Hirschman's best book, I think, Exit Voice and Loyalty. If you're going to read only one, start there. And then go to The Reasons and the Passions. Is that is that usually the way, uh, the right order? That's what people do, but I like strategy of economic development, if I have to pick a second, without intending any slight to the others. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, we've got to move on, but it's a great book. It left me... Um, it left me actually hungry rather than rather than satiated, and, and I mean that entirely as a compliment. I found myself wanting to read a lot more Hirschman in the original, uh, and it's great. So let's move on, though. Uh, the next book is Tim Harford's The Undercover Economist Strikes Back. Tim is a colleague here at the FT, although I've never met him. He's based in London. I'm in New York, and he's one of the great popularizers or popular writers or communicators of economics to the non-specialist, I was going to say normal person, but economists can be normal too, of course, uh, sometimes. Anyways, this book is Tim's first foray into macroeconomics. All his previous books are about micro. Uh, Tyler, you picked this one. What'd you like about it? Well, I think it may be Tim's uh, best book, and he has uh, many very good books. But there's so much talk in the last five, six years about Keynesian macroeconomics. And you might wonder, where can you go to actually understand this, somewhere that's more entertaining than a textbook? And I think Tim has hit a home run with this book. What he really does is he lays out 
the key elements of Keynesian macroeconomics uh, without overly simplifying them. And that's remarkably difficult to do. And I think he's absolutely succeeded. And it has that Tim Harford voice of drawing you in and seducing you with uh, nice, neat stories. So I really like this one. Diane, I think you've you've written a book or two of your own uh, in this vein. The, the soulful science comes to mind, although it's focused more on on cutting edge economics. But how do you think Tim did in terms of uh, in terms of communicating macro? I think this is um, an absolutely essential read if you've been looking at the news and wondering how to make sense of the opposing claims that people are making about the state of the economy and is more stimulus needed or is more quantitative easing needed. It's absolutely. Um, brilliant brilliant a brilliant exposition of what the issues are in that debate and it's not polemical it sets it out very clearly it tells you how to make your judgments about it and actually that the um the kind of battle between different camps is is a bogus one and that you can think about the um what kind of economic policy tools to use in um a, an overarching way that makes absolute sense so i think that bit is is absolutely brilliant i would say that only about half the book is really about macroeconomics because his his true love of microeconomics comes through in many chapters. So, for example, on um, matching and labour markets and structural unemployment, he, he just can't resist those much richer microeconomic subjects too. But of course, that's all fantastically interesting as well and, and relevant to the macroeconomy. Yeah, there's there's something very appealing about the way he writes. He he usually writes about I think conventional topics or topics that are in the news, but his treatment of them is is anything but. Uh, I have another question about Tim's book, though, which is that at the very end, he makes the case that macroeconomics is failing to incorporate thinking from three specific areas, behavioral economics, banking, and complexity theory. Uh, I want to ask if the two of you agree or think that macro will begin to include more from these three fields, especially from behavioral and, and complexity theory. I know that it's starting to look more into banking because I cover that. But do you do you think that, that macro will evolve further in that direction? Tyler, you want to take this one? I think there's already a lot of good work incorporating behavioral elements into macro. Plenty of good papers on that. But the difficulty is doing so in a way which you can generalize or make systematic. And on that, I don't think we've actually made much progress yet at all. So if you ask a simple question, how and why does the risk premium shift? How do the animal spirits move? Uh, you can build a lot of particular models, but I think we're still largely stuck. On complexity theory, uh, I'm not actually so bullish on that one. I think the theory is itself too complex, uh, and it doesn't illuminate the real world clearly enough. Maybe it's like a map that's as big as the, the reality itself it's trying to map. So I would say banking and behavioral, yes, complexity theory, no. I'm I'm rather pessimistic about the state of macroeconomics. I know that people have been trying to incorporate a financial sector in a way that wasn't in the models before, uh, to which I think the only observation is, well, that's a bit a bit late, isn't it? How on earth could you have a macroeconomic model with no banking sector at all to start with? And I, the trouble is I just don't know what goes on the drawing board if you're back to the drawing board with macro. I don't think any of the alternative approaches is obviously the correct one, you know, the agent-based modeling using... Uh, mimic, mimicking people's behavior using computer agents and so on. I just don't know if it's going to turn out to be fruitful or not. But I'm I'm quite pessimistic about what macroeconomics can tell us, really. Okay. And we're going to talk a lot more about this, actually, when, when we talk about Tyler's book as well. Um, but moving right along, uh, let's talk about James Heckman's Giving Kids a Fair Chance. This is a book essentially about inequality or unequal outcomes 
And it makes the case that early intervention for kids in poverty or kids in broken families before uh, around the ages of five or six uh, can make a huge difference for later in life. The format of the book is interesting. Heckman essentially uh, consolidates the relevant research, including some of his own. And he writes an essay to open the book, making his case. And then it's followed by a forum of six or seven other social scientists and thinkers. And then he responds at the very end. Uh, Diane, what did you like about the book? And do you agree or disagree with Heckman's basic thesis? I like the um, clarity of the summary, the synthesis of research that this book gives us. And uh, Jim Heckman's been a pioneer in this kind of work. And I think it's one of the areas where economics tells us something that's that's empirically proven and where, in general terms, we know what kind of public policies need to be implemented as a result of that. And I have some links with the local school, and you can see when the children pitch up at the age of four or five, that already their life chances are extremely divergent. And that anecdotal impression that early intervention makes a difference to their life outcomes is absolutely backed up by a a range of strong evidence now. And this book sets that out very clearly. And then the debate format um, allows um, some of the issues to be challenged and Heckman to respond to those challenges. Sure. So I I agreed with some of Heckman's case, but if I can be perfectly honest, the skeptics persuaded me uh, in some areas. Um, But first, let me let me just ask Tyler, uh, what did you think about this book? And um, did you agree with Heckman or are you yourself a skeptic? very useful and well-written book, but I'm very much a skeptic. I don't think Heckman proves his case at all. His two big pieces of evidence are two small studies, one from the 1960s, one from the 1970s, conducted under unclear conditions, applied to very small groups of individuals. He may well be right, but I think he's pushed this idea uh, much more than the facts themselves support. I view it as highly speculative. Uh, I think we're pretty sure you can ruin a kid early on by treating the kid badly. But if there are problems with the family and outside observers come in at age three, age four, whenever, what can those observers do in the way of a targeted early intervention? Uh, In my view, there really isn't evidence uh, that that can be effective. Okay. Well, I... um... I thought Heckman just about persuaded me enough uh, to think that the issue that, you know, more randomized trials would be would be justified. My actual point of skepticism was a little bit different, which was that in those trials that he that he mentioned, uh, it was incredibly resource intensive. It took a lot of work uh, to get these kids on the right track. And I guess I, I wonder about political feasibility. You know, is it is it the best use of resources? Is it even possible to apply this on a very wide scale. I guess I just wasn't sure about it, but it's still, it's a fascinating read. Um, Dan, you want to respond to what Tyler and I just said before we before we move on? There is uh, other evidence that's consistent with this from other countries too, although this book is just about the US evidence. I think it's correct to say we don't know exactly what interventions would work and there'd need to be a lot more randomized control trials to test that. I think you're probably also right that it's resource intensive, but then you're talking about um, trying to take, to take children into an ent- entirely different um, universe when they're in schools compared to in their dysfunctional families. And I, I think actually that's bound to be resource intensive. And the question is, do you want to tackle the social problems or not? Sure. Okay. The next book is How Asia Works by Joe Studwell. Uh, this book to me was revelatory, I thought, in in a number of different ways. It's essentially an explanation of how agricultural and industrial policy um, applied in a very specific way 
works so well for certain Northeast Asian countries. And it's also a description of how not doing the same thing, not pursuing the same kind of industrial policy has prevented Southeast Asian countries from making those same leaps in growth. Tyler, you said this for you was one of the economics books of the year on your blog. Uh, Tell us why. Well, I view the East Asian growth miracles as maybe the most important economic fact of the last 40 or 50 years. And if you want to know what made those possible, where did they come from, this is probably the single best book to start. It's very well written. It's analytic. It's substantive on every page. Uh, You get a sense of what worked and what didn't, how education was important, how land reform was important, how a relatively egalitarian political structure was important. And also, in particular, the South Korean economic miracle, you get a sense of how it worked because of the discipline they applied. That is, they supported exports. But if a company showed it was not able to export successfully, they would cut it off. So they had this approach to industrial policy, which was not indiscriminate, uh, but really built upon the market test. Yeah, it was it was a combination of, of using market forces in the context of fairly intense financial repression tactics. And it's really kind of incredible the way Studwell marshals his evidence. But obviously, you can see how a book like this would make a lot of economists uh, uncomfortable. And Tyler, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if the book maybe overturned any of your own assumptions or at least severely challenged your own beliefs about how development policy should work? I can, I can confess before you answer that it, it did for me. Well, yes and no. In large part, I already thought this about the South Korean experience, that here was a case where industrial policy actually worked pretty well. But in other ways, you can read the book as showing how hard that formula is to replicate. You have to have a lot of things come together in exactly the right way. You need policymakers with discipline, and you need this willingness uh, you know, to cut off on the losers. One of the best parts of the book, I think, are the contrasts with the Philippines and Indonesia and Thailand and asking why didn't these other places have comparable success. Yeah, um, and, and the book does a great job of answering that. Uh, you know, given that, that South Korea is the only unqualified success in the book by, by Studwell's own, own measurement, um, I, guess, I guess I came away thinking that we still ought to be pretty careful about assuming that the same set of circumstances are necessarily replicable somewhere else in another part of the world. Um, how cautious should we be about the replicability of this model? And you know, should, should people in different parts of, say, sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, South Asia – be looking to this and thinking, yeah, this could work. This is very much a book in the Albert Hirschman tradition, actually. Uh, we should be extremely cautious about any formula applied across a lot of countries. And the ability to so rapidly gear up with manufacturing and the way in which South Korea was in some ways riding piggyback off of the Japanese miracle, uh, those would be factors which could not easily be replicated in sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of the growth comes much more from resources. So if you're looking for proof that Hirschman is still relevant, I would say go read the Studley book. It's great. Yeah, I, I, and I did find myself, because I read them one after the other, wondering what Hirschman would think about the book. Um, and I agree with your points, although I also came away wondering if, if Hirschman, given his skepticism of sweeping conclusions, might have looked at this and said, you know, this worked great here, but we need to be careful. Um, on the other hand, Hirschman was, might have appreciated the, the kind of iconoclastic or, or idiosyncratic uh, approach he himself um, 
he himself, Hirschman, uh, rubbed a lot of a lot of his peers the wrong way in that sense, and, and he might have he might have liked this in that regard. Anyways, it's a it's a fantastic book. There's a lot about this book that will I think challenge assumptions in terms of um, what we think about free trade, what we think about industrial policy, what we think about financial repression. There are some instances where, yeah, I guess we ought to give it a look, or at least that's what what I came away thinking. Um, one last question on this book, Tyler. Uh, do you think that an approach like this might lose relevance given the expected so-called rise of the robots, the trend for reshoring to the extent that it is happening or when it does happen? Uh, do you think that this is going to have an impact not just, as you write in your own book, for middle income or middle class jobs in developed economies, but also for ideas of how development policy will work, given that a lot of these, you know, a lot of the products that are made to be exported will now be made nearby? I think automation and artificial intelligence will make it much harder for a lot of developing economies to grow. Having low wages won't be such a selling point anymore. That's already the case. We're seeing a reshoring of manufacturing back to North America because it's close and because the wages aren't that high anyway. So I think this old development model, which we saw in the middle and latter part of the 20th century, be like Japan, be like South Korea, move up the ladder, go up the quality chain. I don't think it will be very easy to do that. I think uh, those days are over, and there was this era of standard industrialization, and now countries will have to find different paths. It's become harder anyway, hasn't it, as products have become so much more complex over time, and the question has been slotting yourself into those very long and complex global supply chains if you if you want to grow. And that's very different from the 1960s when you could reverse engineer a washing machine and figure out how to manufacture your own. And by the way, I should note now that I screwed up. I failed to get Diane a copy of this book in time for this podcast, which is the only reason I wasn't asking her questions. Otherwise, she would have many wonderful and smart things to say about it. Um, I, I didn't mean to uh, to ignore you, Diane. Well, I'm obviously uh, looking forward to reading it now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. The first chapter on, on egalitarian land reforms I thought was the highlight for me. Uh, it's a fascinating overview of how the redistribution of land from feudal landowners to farmers, how family plots actually produce a lot more food than farms to scale and how that creates an income shock, a consumption shock uh, for a country and allows them to start importing the products uh, the manufacturers that lead to an industrialized base is really the highlight for me. It's a fantastic book. Um, so, yeah, buy it. Uh, next up on the list, America's Assembly Line by David Nye. It's a straightforward but very well-researched and really very well-written history of exactly that, I guess, the assembly line. Diane, this one was yours. You want to tell us why you chose this book? I love business histories anyway, and this is a, a very readable and detailed story about uh, with a focus on the car industry, the auto industry, uh, of the introduction of uh, mass assembly, mass production, and how that evolved over time. And it has the famous tale, of course, of Henry Ford more than doubling the pay of his, his workers and uh, so that they could um, afford the products that they were producing. One of the things I learned was actually this had been introduced quietly in Ford's factory in the UK. It's only overseas plant at the time, and it worked so well in 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 Britain that it was introduced to the US factory as well. And um, at, at the time, if a working class family could choose, had to choose between getting a bathtub and getting a car, they were more likely to get the car, which I think is fascinating and parallel to the fact that if families in a village in Africa now can only afford either uh, an inside lavatory or a telephone, they're going to get the mobile phone. And um, 
the well, the, the the Second World War obviously gave a great impetus to mass production and, and extended it throughout uh, industry, throughout manufacturing, but also into other industries like construction as well and the mass production of, of houses for workers. And um, the book also then traces its diminishment over time because the downside of the assembly line is that the work is boring, it's monotonous, it's hard, workers don't have any flexibility. So as the products that they're producing become more sophisticated, that lack of flexibility is actually um, a negative and makes for lower productivity. So over time, it gave way to the Japanese lean manufacturing system. So it's it's fascinating and great history of uh, manufacturing, which of course was a, a really important part of the economy and um, not quite so important now. Yeah, that was my favorite part of the book was how Japan imported the technology made it much better, and then ended up exporting the technology. Uh, Tyler, what did you think about the book? I liked this book, but I didn't love it. It didn't have that wow moment for me. I thought it was very well done. Maybe what I got most out of it was just the sense of how big and important a revolution mass production was, and walking the reader through that in detail in a pretty clear way. Uh, so I'm all positives on it, but there wasn't a, a revelation in the pages for me. Okay. Well, on to uh, the main event. Average is over, powering America beyond the great stagnation. This is Tyler Cowen's new book. It comes out on September 12th. Uh, we're going to talk about it now. Tyler, you want to start us off very broadly. What do you mean when, when you refer to average and why has it ended? This book is a look at increasing income inequality and what's caused it and why that's likely to continue for the future. And I think we are starting to see some very significant technological breakthroughs in smart machines and artificial intelligence. Two things on the horizon which are not here yet. One would be driverless cars. Another would be medical diagnosis by artificial intelligence, say by uh, the program Watson. So I think this will be revolutionizing our world. I think a lot of the economic returns from that will accrue to capital. I think a lot of our future uh, will be governed by a pretty simple question, and that is, are you as a worker competing against computers? or are computers somehow augmenting or adding to your value? And most individuals will fall on one side of that equation or another. So I imagine, say, a future America where, say, 15% of the population are like millionaires. It's no longer the, the top 1%. It's the top 15%. And then you have stagnant or slightly falling wages for many of the other people. And I try to think through, how is a world like that going to work? What principles will govern it? Uh, what will the politics be like, and uh, to provide an economist's take on where I think uh, developed economies are headed. Sure. And one of the before we even get to how it's going to influence the world, why don't you talk about how we know it's happening? Because I think the usual response uh, to questions about technological unemployment or underemployment or stagnant wages is to look to history and say, well, Remember the Luddites, you know, or remember even, you know, as Diane mentioned, everything that, that happened in the wake of the assembly line. Every time people start worrying about this, it turns out that the environment adjusts. So how, how do we know this is happening and where is it showing up uh, in the data? Well, first, I think the Luddites are a pretty good parallel. So think of the Industrial Revolution as arriving in the 1770s or the 1780s in Great Britain. Well, British wages don't go up by a significant amount until the 1840s. So there's definitely an adjustment, but it takes many decades. And that's what I think this revolution will be like, too. There will be a lot of beneficial adjustments, 
uh, but these stresses and transition problems will last for many decades. What we do see in the data, uh, for most developed economies, the share of labor and national output is falling and has been falling for a while. And I think much of that is due to automation and the substitution uh, of capital rather than labor. We're also seeing income inequality go up. Even in social welfare states like Germany and Australia, uh, inequality is rising very rapidly. It's not fundamentally about politics, but there's something about the technologies we're inventing that help some people earn much, much more and seem to limit the earnings of some others. A lot of the gains to labor, they're being distributed throughout the developing world, China, India, and that's a good thing. But it has meant that wages in the United States, in the UK, uh, they're either growing more slowly or maybe they're falling altogether. Yeah, well, there's lots to talk about here. Um, Diane, I want to I want to get you involved early on, though. You want to you want to respond to what Tyler just said, or maybe you have it's, a question or two of your own. Yeah, it's a great book, and I think, as Tyler says, a key question for everybody is, uh, can what you do be substituted by computers? And the answers to that might be quite surprising. And we've seen, you know, he mentioned driverless cars, but the new kind of uh, checkouts in supermarkets where you don't pay a human being, you pay a machine now. So uh, that's definitely. Um, a big part of the story about income inequality, which has increased to quite dramatic levels, not seen since the 19, 1920s. But these, the outcomes are socially determined. And although I would agree that the transition will take a very long time, I think we need to start thinking now about what kind of what kind of social adjustments are needed because they need they need organising, they need people to do things. So looking back at say the early 20th century, one of the uh, re responses was the spread of public education and uh, free primary school education and then later secondary school education to create the kind of workers who complemented the machines of the assembly line. So what are, what's the equivalent now? We have a mass production school system that hammers uniform uh, information into the heads of children who get very bored by it. That can't be right if you think their jobs are going to be competed away by machines in the future. So we need to start uh, planning now, thinking now about what sort of social responses to this ultimately unsustainable inequality ought to be? Okay, Tyler, you want to you want to respond to to Diane? I mean, this is this is I think uh, something that you cover towards the end of your book, but there's no reason we can't talk about it now. What kinds of policy responses would be appropriate to the world you just described? I agree very much with Diane's points. I think what we're seeing spread now is the rise of online education, not just in the formal sense but teaching yourself informally online through blogs and commentary and the like, or, or learning programming online. And a lot of that is free. And I think we're going to hit a new constraint that the world hasn't quite seen before, that there'll be a great education there for you, for free or very cheap. But you'll need to have a lot of discipline and conscientiousness to take advantage of it. It's Jim Heckman's non-cognitive skills. And we'll face this startling question, how many people actually have that much discipline? And what can we do to help them get that discipline? And I don't think any of us know the answer as to how many people can take advantage of a really good education that's for free. In a sense, uh, how malleable are people when the rewards to being educated are high and the opportunity is there, but you don't have you know, a peer group egging you on the whole time? And that, I think, is what will be the key question, is, is one about human nature. Yeah, and in terms of in terms of the skills that are needed, you make a, a very powerful case 
that we need to be able to work alongside to collaborate with machines. And you use as a reference point something called freestyle chess. I'd never heard of it until your book. Why don't you tell us what it is and tell us what insights you can extrapolate from it about the labor market uh, and especially with respect to uh, machine and human collaboration. Freestyle chess gives you a model for how labor markets might evolve. The way the game works is you pit a human and a computer against a human and a computer uh, in a game of chess. So the human and the computer collaborate with the human, of course, in charge. And there's plenty of evidence that a human and computer working together do better than just the computer. Because even computers which can beat any human quite easily, they have their own limitations. So the, the key that focuses you on is how can Im humans improve upon computers? One interesting thing we see from freestyle chess is the best humans at this are not the best chess players. They tend too much to want to override the computer. It's the individuals who process a lot of information quite rapidly and who are, in a sense, quite modest about their own intelligence. They're very smart, but they're aware all the time that they might be making a mistake. And they will do better, say, than top grandmasters at freestyle chess. I thought the section about chess was really interesting. Um, but one of the striking things, Tyler, was where you commented that nobody likes to watch machines play chess. The ones that get the, the people watching are still the human versus human games. That's right. It was forecast by many people a few decades ago that once computers could beat humans, the game of chess would wither away. And that hasn't at all happened. Actually, there's more spectator interest in chess because you can watch the humans, plug their games into your computer, and see what mistakes they're making. And uh, viewers actually seem to find that more fun. So that's just one way of many in which the future implications of smart computers uh, can be hard to predict. Yeah, Tyler, I'll, I'll tell you what, what I took from that section or what I what sort of you know, stuck in my mind the most. You make a point about your own discomfort early on in watching freestyle chess games. You're watching and you know that the moves you're watching are better moves than a human on his own or her own would come up with. Uh, and yet, precisely because they are not, quote-unquote, human moves, it's very disorienting and confusing, and it makes you wonder how many things in life are just the same way, how many things in life we do just because of, I don't know, uh, unconscious behavior, heuristics, whatever it is that, that makes you comfortable doing them. Uh, and you stress the value in being able to do the uncomfortable thing in resistance to that discomfort. Um, you want to just talk about how that applies to both working life and our personal lives. Well, a good example of how we might have a hard time with perfection or near perfection, I think, is driverless cars. So it's pretty clear they can be much safer than human drivers. But, of course, you have to program them, and you have to program them to make decisions. So maybe if you're going to run into a pedestrian and you, you tell the program, well, should you swerve? But what if the question is, should you, you know, hit one baby carriage or two elderly people? What kind of decision rule do you program into the, uh, the machinery? And when humans make these decisions, I mean, we're not quite happy, but basically we accept the extreme imperfections of those human decisions. But if we as a society have to come out and admit to ourselves, here's how we're making the assessments and the trade-offs, I think we're really quite bad at doing that. And we have all these intuitions that have evolved for imperfect humans, and we now are going to have to apply them to much higher quality computer programs, whether it be in law or medicine or, or driving our vehicles for us. And I think we're going to do that very badly. We'll react quite uh, emotionally, and we'll make a mess of it. 
But it's an interesting question whether having to think about teaching or programming ethics into computers will make us think more clearly about the ethics of human societies ourselves, because we do often do this at the level of emotion and intuition, don't we? That's right. We have this problem with drones right now. How certain do you need to be before you pull the trigger and maybe you will kill innocent civilians? Well, at least we are told the final decisions now are always made by humans. But over time, that's unlikely to be the case. Uh, the programs in the drone or at some distance will be judging. Yeah, this is uh, in a book that I know that both of you have read, Robot Futures. Uh, Ilan Nurbash makes the case that it's going to be more difficult to assign accountability. You know, who do you blame? Do you blame whoever programmed uh, the robot for screwing up? Do you blame the robot itself somehow? Do you blame whoever was in charge of executing it? But how do you do that if there's 50 people uh, simultaneously in charge of doing it? Um, Tyler, why don't you talk about accountability? Because in another part of your book, you talk about how we're actually going to be ranking people a lot more and how that's going to have pervasive effects on society. Well, one thing smart software is used to do is to decide how good workers are. And this isn't always transparent. But uh, over time, imagine gathering more data on workers and their backgrounds and what you observe of them in the workplace, maybe even complemented by surveillance. And we'll get much better predictors of who is a good worker and who is not. This will in many ways augment productivity, but it also will bring us back to the core message of the book, average is over. Some people will be paid a lot more. Other people will acquire stigmas. They'll be like, you know, having a bad credit score. Once you have that, it's pretty hard to get rid of, and employers don't necessarily want to take chances on you. So I think in some ways we may have too much information about people, and we'll have to learn new ways of dealing with one or two pieces of negative information about a person, because we've all made mistakes. Most of those stay hidden or they're forgotten. But in the future world to come, mistakes will be recorded and they will be measured. And it's a bit like being a chess player where there's a numerical rating, and that rating really does tell the world pretty much just how good you are. I was troubled by this, this idea of ratings, I must say, because, of course, there are all kinds of uh, soft skills or non-cognitive skills that you can't measure. So to take the medical example, um, how on earth would you assess in that judgment that you're trying to make of a member of medical staff how much they cared for patients, how, how warm they were, how good they made people feel? It couldn't be done. Well, I think computers will be doing it. When the patient comes in the door, the patient itself uh, will be himself or herself will be assigned a rating. How hard is it to fix up this person? And then you'll have a doctor assigned to hundreds of patients over time. And that doctor basically will have a rating. The rating may be owned by the hospital. Uh, very wealthy individuals will pay a lot of money to find out what the ratings are and get the doctors with the best ratings. And a lot of people will try to keep these ratings secret, but if you don't disclose your rating, you'll be assumed to be a lemon. And I think over time this information will get out. Uh, it will be a very problematic future. Yeah, it's... They won't be correct all the time, these ratings. But to people, they will feel better than not relying on any metric at all. Yeah, I mean, even as, as, as a blogger, you'd think it would be easy to keep track of the kind of work you're doing. Um, if a lot of people link to your post, if you get a lot of readers' hits, you can get a sense of, of how good of a blogger you are. And yet, when I go into a blog post, I really have no idea how well it's going to do in terms of those metrics. Some of the work that I'm proudest of ended up being completely ignored. And then some things that I, I didn't, you know, I didn't put as much work into ended up getting passed around quite a bit. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how we come up with the right metrics. Um, 
And none of them will work unless they're combined with judgment. I mean, you can get a lot of hits on your blog post by saying something controversial but, but wrong. So you've got to combine the judgment about the quality with, with any metric that you can come up with. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, Tyler, uh, I want to talk about um, teachers and professors. You say that this is going to change over time, that they're going to be mostly motivators, that they're going to be more like coaches. Uh, why so? The information itself already is not scarce. It's out there. You can read it online. Again, a lot of people are not motivated to do so, but the comparative advantage of the professor is as a role model, as a motivator, really as a coach. I think one of the biggest growth sectors in the economy overall will be motivators and coaches because as software does more and more about information, as it does more and more, which is algorithmic, this core underlying element, how do you get people to care? How do you grab their attention? Uh, how do you either coax or maybe even manipulate their feelings? That's what humans will have this irreducible advantage at. And that's where job growth will be, I think, in academia, celebrity tutors. Yeah, like in South Korea. That's right. The top celebrity tutor there earns $4 million a year. Uh, he's not a Nobel laureate, but he seems to be really good at getting the students to care. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, I, I'm reminded of the fact that a lot of times it's easy to sneer at quote-unquote life coaches because you think, well, uh, if they're so smart about what to do with your life or your career, why aren't they doing it themselves? But actually that's in many ways missing the point. It's not the substance of what they're telling you, but in some cases just how they make you feel about yourself that, that I guess is, is the real value there. Um, but in teaching, well, think this of is the a... yoga instructor. You could just watch the DVD, but a lot of people want to go to class. The yoga instructor basically is a motivator. In teaching, this is a good thing, isn't it? It takes us to what ought to be the essence of good teaching, which is inspiring people to find things out for themselves and, and to love to learn rather than regurgitating information that they have to memorize for exams. Yeah. That's right, but a lot of academics are not actually good at inspiring, and I think uh, they'll be in for rude awakenings when the world starts realizing well, maybe you know your services aren't that valuable all the time. Tyler, let's let's switch to science because this was this was an intriguing chapter as well. You talk about how it's becoming increasingly inscrutable, and you make the point that each time an important math theorem is proved or thought to be proved, it's impossible to know for a very long time because you need teams of people who specialize in each different area of the proof to come together to figure it out. What what kinds of implications does that have for scientific progress and advancement? Well, science becomes more and more specialized, which is both good and inevitable. But it means that very few people will understand scientific theories in their entirety. They may be beyond our intuition. It could be the theories themselves are discovered or invented by computer programs. Only the computer, in a sense, gets the theorem. And we'll just rather darkly see corners of the theorem. And the stuff may work for us but it will be a strange world where science in many cases will feel more and more like magic. I thought like imagine we had a perfect macroeconomic model that had in it behavioral elements, it had complexity theory, it had a banking sector. Uh, like Diane said, this is very hard to do, but say we had it. It's very hard for a human to keep all those moving parts clear in your mind, and arguably then we would have a macro theory that even if it predicted well, we wouldn't quite really get what's making it tick. I like the observation that this increases the importance of people who can synthesize for um, all the rest of us what's going on in science. Yeah, and Tyler, I mean, you just mentioned economics. 
Uh, you say that it's it's going to become increasingly data driven. You look at the work that people like Esther Duflo are doing, and you seemed you seemed encouraged by it. Well, I think it will be good for human knowledge. I think in some ways it will make economics less fun. It will be more like a gathering Easter eggs exercise. I think a lot of the low-hanging theoretical fruit has been taken. I don't think we're going to invent startling new theories about individuals' economic behavior. It will be, it already is, who can find the next new neat data set. So we'll accumulate a lot of very small pieces. Diane had this great blog post where she talked about a lot of economists will become more like people who are studying the digestive system of a starfish. They'll do small things, and they'll get that. But the bigger picture may in some ways actually be receding from us. But I think this is a good thing. Economics has been um, too data light in the past, and the advent of new data sets and computer power and techniques like randomized control trials is a really good thing for economics. Yeah, sure, and in any case, it's inevitable. It also goes back to Tyler's earlier point that I liked about how this represents economists working alongside the machines. Computers can crunch data. They can't gather it. They can't, they can't ask questions. They can't come up with creative approaches to asking questions. They don't, you know, they, they're not physical enough. They're not flexible enough to, to do that. Um, so that's, that's an interesting point too. Uh, Tyler, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the aftermath of the financial crisis. Something that you've been writing on your blog is that over time, as the crisis recedes from our memory, policy matters less and less. And you don't talk about it much in the book, but since I have you here now, I want to ask you about it. So, for instance, in the book, you say that one of the reasons that a lot of jobs aren't coming back and that wages are stagnant is that the way that companies have adjusted to the crisis is to think that those jobs aren't coming back. In other words, it's almost like a self-fulfilling thing um, and that policy maybe can't influence it as much anymore. Can you go into detail there and, and explain why you think that fiscal and monetary policy can't jumpstart the kind of jobs growth that maybe we'd like in light of these secular trends that you describe in the book? Well, I think they can help a bit, but when you're in the middle of technological revolutions, they can't always help as much as you would like. So a lot of companies, they're fairly lazy. If things are working for them, they don't want to rock the boat too much. They don't want to fire too many workers. But then an economic crisis comes along. Everyone is short on cash. In a sense, all these companies are forced to look further in the future than they otherwise were going to do. They can't just ask, what's working for me now, because nothing is. But they need to ask, where am I headed in 10 years? So it accelerates a lot of technological trends, having a macro crisis. So the cyclical and the structural elements all of a sudden interact quite intensely. And you ask, what will my company be like in 10 years? And if I have to make some cuts, well, maybe I should get there now. Uh, and then you make the cuts. And this has some efficiency gains, but it also has some social costs. But cuts like that, they're not just going to be reversed by a dose of inflation or fiscal policy. You know, they're basically permanent. Now, policy can still be somewhat effective. Monetary policy can ease the flow of credit. Fiscal policy, if well-designed, can produce useful things which put people to work. But the idea that just by pushing on some kind of aggregate demand curve, you're going to bring those jobs back to where they were, uh, I don't think that's been working over the last five years. Dan, you agree? Yes, I guess I do. I, I mean, I think it's certainly true that um, policy can create the environment for the new firms and, and the new innovations to get going. And this is the pattern in 
recessions and recoveries that it's the weaker firms go go bust or, or downsize and it's new ones coming in that stimulate the growth in the next cycle so so i think there is some scope for policy but yes i agree and i think it would be a mistake to imagine that given the scale of the crisis and the shakeout we can expect to go back quickly to the kind of growth rates that were experienced in the in the late 90s okay tyler let's talk about texas you make the case uh, that the U.S. will increasingly look like Texas, or at least that a lot of people in the U.S. will migrate to the places that resemble Texas. Uh, take us through your reasoning. It's already the case. If you look, what's the big state where people are moving more than any other? It's Texas. Three out of the five fastest-growing cities in the United States are in Texas. Uh, there's a lot wrong with Texas. It's too hot. It has bad weather. The educational system is so-so, but it has some things going for it. Uh, You can, in fact, get a job there. There's okay business growth, and the price of land and housing is extremely cheap. So that's telling me at the margin what people really want is some cash in their pocket. Uh, Texas has arguably mediocre social services. And if you see that's the flow of migration, you can think of that as looking with a kind of telescope into America's future. People are leaving New York and California. They're moving to places and states like Texas, Oklahoma, parts of the South. And I think our country uh, will look more like that. Yeah, and that's both an optimistic and a pessimistic point. Pessimistic in the sense that you do foresee a kind of new economic underclass. And yet you are not so worried that it's it's going to become a violent or a riotous underclass. You think uh, that actually it will continue to become increasingly peaceful. Um, why is that? All of our societies are getting older. They're getting older quite rapidly. Uh, generally, the elderly are not leading riot, revolt, and revolution. In fact, the elderly love to vote for law and order candidates who will use the police to put down riots and, if necessary, use surveillance. So I think the future will be quite peaceful, not always or necessarily in in pleasant ways. Uh, But I don't think that rising inequality will mean more crime. Inequality has gone up a lot since the early 80s, especially in the United States. Crime rates, murder rates, they've really plummeted. And often they've plummeted the most where inequality has gone up the most, such as New York City. That's counterintuitive, but I think it's part of what our future will look like. Historically, protest is the result of booms, if you look at 1968 in, in Western Europe or uh, the recent middle-class riots in, in Brazil or Turkey. It's a, it's exactly. a phenomenon of people, people who are confident, not people who are uh, hanging on in there just about. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. And Tyler, let's, let's talk about time frames for a minute here, because you write in the book that you do not agree with uh, your colleague Robin Hansen and some of the other uh, people from the Singularity Institute who think that it's possible that within the next few decades we'll be able to replicate a human brain on a computer uh, and that that's going to lead to a kind of exponential growth process where then the brains start replicating themselves. Um, economic growth you know, spikes through the roof and essentially human beings become the new underclass and we have to hope uh, that the robots don't uh, kill us all because they're they're you know interested themselves in having a peaceful and ethical society, just like we don't kill off old people or you know weak people and steal their stuff. You are not so uh, you don't quite buy that progress will be so rapid. You think that it's going to resemble some of the trends that you write about in the book. Uh, can you just talk about so you talk about your rationale there? Why you think uh, that maybe some of the AI optimists are getting a little bit too far ahead of themselves? 
Well, I just don't see the evidence that we're all about to become computer uploads fairly soon. I don't see it in market prices. I don't see it in the technologies. All these technologies are still highly imperfect. The notion that they're going to inject these tiny little bots into your brain that will like swim through your brain and photograph all the different parts and turn it into some kind of working computer model, uh, I think we're very, very far from that. Uh, I think the odds of it ever happening are probably less than one in a million. I think it's much more likely that civilization ends first. And ultimately, computers, in my view, they're glorified cash registers. They can do very powerful, wonderful things, and there will be steady advance. But these utopian views strike me actually as more like a religion than anything else. All right. Well, when they enslave us all, they'll they'll point to what you just said and 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 name you the chief dissenter. Um, we're well, running out of first, right? <laughs> We're we're running out of time. Uh, I wanna I wanna close by asking you each um, a broad question about trends in economics books. I mentioned at the start of the podcast that the two of you uh, dedicate a lot of your writing on your blogs to reading and then discussing economics books. And I just want to ask if there are any themes that you've noticed are ascendant in the last few years, uh, if the structure of the books is changing at all, and really if you've noticed anything at all. Diane, you want to go first? The quantity of um, good accessible economics books is the most striking thing, I think, the fact that there are so many now, often written by academics and with scholarly aims in mind, but also very accessible to general readers. And that's that's the biggest thing. Uh, a lot, of course, about the financial crisis, as you'd expect, people trying to understand what it means, how it happened, what the implications are. Um, a lot of economic history, and I'm very pleased to see that making a comeback, and, and, and the business histories too is a flourishing genre. Tyler? We live in a golden age of economics books, but I'll tell you, the one thing I really want is an excellent book on the nature, meaning, and history of GDP. And I hear there's one coming out <laughs> fairly soon by Diane. So I think this is one of the most underexplored areas, and this will likely be a very important book. Yeah, Diane, you want to you give us a little bit of a, of a teaser if you can? I don't know how much uh, you can divulge, but you know, whatever you can divulge, we'd love to hear it. The book does what it says on the cover. It's a history of GDP, and I learned a lot from uh, researching and writing it. First of all, that this this figure that we put so much importance on and we hang on every small change and revision to it is we think of it as something natural like a mountain that you're trying to measure the height of, but of course it's not. It's a, it's an analytical construct. It's very complicated. The way we think about the economy has changed a lot over time. And I talk about the difference between measuring the economy, economic output, which is what it was intended for and why it was devised in the way it is now during the Second World War, and measuring economic welfare. And um, often GDP is used as a, as a measure of welfare, including by economists who should know better because we do know it's only measuring output. And um, so contrary to some people, I think we definitely need to measure the economy and we need to distinguish measuring welfare and think about other ways to do that. But I'd say that the gap between GDP and welfare is getting bigger than it used to be because the economy is becoming more complicated and, and, and more varied than the, the variety of products and services available in the modern economy is, is enormous and it's very hard for GDP to catch that properly. So going forward, I think a need for some thought by statisticians about what kind of metrics would best inform economic policy. Yeah, and here's here's uh, an issue that ties together themes from the two of you because in The Great Stagnation, Tyler makes the point that because the government is so heavily involved in a couple of the you know fastest growing sectors of the economy, education and healthcare, 
GDP and macroeconomic data overall is maybe reflecting less and less um, what kind of value we're getting because obviously they they measure um, they measure growth based on you know money spent or income earned, and yet each dollar of income may not be telling us. Uh, as much as it used to because of the government's involvement. I mean, is that is that something that generally you agree with? Yes, we've had an increasingly services-based economy. It's not just government services, but all services that are hard to measure. Financial services, too, the way it's done in the national accounts is absolutely bizarre. So in the quarter when the financial crisis hit, the last quarter of 2008, UK GDP statistics showed the financial service sector making its biggest contribution ever. And this is just insanity. It's really hard to measure these parts of the economy. Yeah, the the Q4 2008 GDP number in the U.S. was also a tremendously huge miss. This is my final question, I guess, to both of you is how I mean, how carefully how how much should we react to any given data point? And should I, as a blogger and somebody who covers macro data for a living, uh, despair at the fact that I never really know what's going on in real time and that I have to wait a year or two to really figure out what the big trends are? I don't think you need to wait a year or two. I think you just need to have lots of data. So never look at one figure in isolation, but have a dashboard and interpret each new figure in the context of that dashboard. I would say always be cautious. And at the margin, uh, read as much history as one can. Often you do better that way than just by staring at the same current numbers that everyone else is looking at. Diane Coyle, Tyler Cowan, thanks so much for being on Alpha Chat. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.